On the Empire Podcast this week, we go back in time with Men in Black 3, we delve into Wes Anderson's Moonrise Kingdom, and we tell you what to expect when watching what to expect when you're expecting. Spoiler, not much. Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt, fresh from my up at dawn pride-swallowing siege that I will never fully tell you about exertions in Cannes, and this is the Empire Podcast, a movie podcast that gets changed into its kit at the last minute and rushes onto the pitch, hugging all the glory. As ever, I'm joined by a crack squadron of Empire's finest. Let's start with Helen O'Hara, who spent six years... Six years studying to become a barrister before deciding that earning loads of money wasn't her thing. Hello, Helen. Well, I mean, who wants financial security or or solvency even? Then we have James Dyer, who spent three years, James, three to four years, studying theology, despite the fact he's an atheist, just so he could win arguments with religious people. Hello. That is correct, my son. (laughs) (laughs) And that was your literal reasoning for doing that? Pretty much, yeah. Excellent. And uh, last but not least, we have Phil Dissemblian, who once spent six years disguised as a Polish cinema so he could better understand Krzysztof Kozlowski's Three Colours trilogy. Hello, Phil. (laughs) Hi, Chris. That's correct. Okay, let's link hands and try to commune seance style with the Empire Raiders who all week have been bombarding us with emails, tweets and strange smelling envelopes that frankly we don't even want to open. First up is a tweet from at Angry Will Helms who asks What film made you cry for all the wrong reasons? Mine was The Last Holiday when Queen Latifah got her good news. Wow. I cry at most Queen Latifah films. <laughs> Taxi had me bawling, simply bawling. I imagine this is phrased slightly incorrectly. I don't think he's saying what film made you cry for all the wrong reasons. I think he's saying what mawkish films that you normally shouldn't cry at made you cry. Helen? Yeah, I, I cry at everything, to be honest. Well, not everything, you know, but if there's anything even vaguely cryy, I tend to cry. So um, I cried at the bit in Stepmothers where Julia Roberts and Susan Sarandon have their big sort of heart-to-heart conversation at the end. That's okay. quite sad. I cried at the bit in Forrest Gump when he finds out he has a son and he asks oh. really, you know, tentatively and very worriedly if his son is, is okay or if he suffers the same problems that Forrest has. Gets me every time. Escape yeah. to victory. <laughs> really? always made me emotional. I don't know. It must have seemed like a million times on bank holidays. Which, which That's bit? such a which safe the end answer. When the French are all chanting victoire and Stallone's pulled off an epic Petr Cech style penalty save. An amazing save. Yeah. And it was a great save. And, I'm and then, sorry, sorry. No, um, and I, John Terry turns up and joins the Allies <laughs> in celebrating. And they make it to freedom. I don't know why. It's the music, I think. I it's think not the quality of filmmaking. It's the, it's the film that all men can admit to crying at. There's I know, nothing I, embarrassing I about that. I'd escaped a victory. I, until recently, I didn't cry at any movies. The only movie I'd ever cried at was um, The Jungle Book when I was a kid, when Blue dies mm. in air quotes and then obviously he's okay but the second time I watched it I still knew he was going to be alive and I still cried you know stupid <laughs> little six year old I didn't stupid, cry at anything not sh- there's list nothing but then I saw Up and that reduced me to, to a wreck yes. yeah. I saw Up twice and it made me weep I think yeah yeah. But that's making you cry for the right reasons, to be honest. The right reasons. James, James. you are a granite man. <laughs> yeah. I. You know what? I don't really cry in films, though. It's it's hard not to share a, shed a tear in Commando, for example, when they're, <laughs> when they're petting the deer and, and, and he smudges ice cream on his nose. That, that brings a tear to my eye. And then Jenny is plucked. Then Jenny, plucked Jenny is, is taken away by, uh, <laughs> by Vernon Wells. Do, is it do, fair do, to say that ordinarily the only thing to bring a tear to your eye would be tear gas? <laughs> Possibly. No, no. I, in, in my, I will say, I did actually shed a tear at the beginning of Up, which for me was actually very unexpected. We need to find someone that didn't cry at the beginning of Up. Thanks for uh, for that question from Angry Will Helms, who doesn't seem that angry. Seems a bit, bit teary. He's going to be angry really. after he said him, told him that his question was wrongly phrased. At FizzSnap says, It's two years to the day since the last finale. What are your thoughts? I'm still disappointed, but I always expected to be. But surely if your expectations were fulfilled, then how could you be disappointed anyway? I'll be honest, I have never seen a single episode of Lost I'm that guy it's James has seen you. all the episodes were you disappointed by the ending of Lost yeah. yes but then I've been disappointed since I think the second season I could bang on about this for hours and for all of your sanity I won't but <laughs> <laughs> what really upsets me about television this is the nature of network television is that it gets to a point where the writers are making this shit up as they go along and it happened with the X-Files and it happens with absolutely everything and I think when you get to the point where the people on the internet coming up with theories are actually better than the people writing the show you should probably kick it in the head but that's what, why I stopped watching Lost after about three episodes because I read an article with the writers where they were saying yes we're making this up as we go along and we're going back and reshooting earlier episodes adding extra mm. scenes to make it make sense, to make it make sense. Mm. and I thought I'm not getting into this again I'm not doing this to myself mm. with all of these things and I got it with Battlestar Galactica as well it's well, amazing true. for three seasons and then I'm just thinking this is just you're just making this up now. The and only you're one pretending it was who the great plan. ever got it right, I, w- I always thought, it was J. Michael Straczynski with <laughs> Babylon 5. five. No, agreed, yeah. Because the agreed. whole thing was planned out from the beginning, except for the fact that he thought he was going to get cancelled, so he wrapped it all up a season early, and then he got the extra season, and then just 
tread water for basically a mm. whole of the, the last Of course, season. the person who did actually get it right and actually made it happen, that's The Wire. Yeah, it that's did actually, actually very true. happen. True, but then they, they were making it up as they went along to a, to a large extent. To an extent, yeah, but they had a framework, I think. Indeed. Wouldn't it be amazing if Coronation Street, which is 50 years old this year, had been planned from the start? <laughs> <laughs> they knew exactly where they were going. It's the grandest story arc yeah, in narrative history. Huge book. He just wrote it down. I came back with the guy, Tony Warren, I think, created it years ago, and he had the massive book, 4,000 pages thick. <laughs> and now, even even to this day, every development is down in that book. That'd be astonishing. Wow. It's not a Lord of the Rings, is it? It's just yeah. a bunch of people in Manchester having beer. He foresaw the coming of uh, of mobile he was, phones. He was a everything. visionary. <laughs> no, he was the HG Wells of his day. At Skeletal Sam asks, with Prometheus looming, and it's yes, next week actually, which other franchises should get the sort of a prequel treatment? Very good question. Anything hmm. crying out for the treatment? Have you ever seen a film and you thought, oh, I wonder how that person got to that? Commando. <laughs> Again. That's I, just I your see, No, the dear story, I think, needs does, to be told. Does Commando play in a loop in your mind? Pretty just much. constantly. Yeah. Escape yeah. to victory. I want to know how they caught Stallone <laughs> in the first place. If anyone's listening to this, we have seen more films in Commando <laughs> and Escape to victory and up. It may not seem that way, but I, I'm promising you we have. I, I honestly, I, I just don't really like seeing prequels. What about Total Recall, for instance? Oh, what they're doing Total it. Recall? What would that be? Like total experience. It's just happening. You just it's remember just it at all. When he's just doing sort of blue collar work. <laughs> Ken Loach. No, no, a prequel to Total Recall would be him as a spy. Oh, yeah. Or would it? Or would it? Or would it? Indeed. Or maybe well, it's just him sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> just ninety minutes of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger sleeping, which I imagine would be James's favourite film. It would. Yeah. <laughs> Going from what you've been saying so far. At Cliff J seventy one says Empire career highlight to date. Well, apart from being asked that question, do we have a career highlight? What's what's been there's the best no thing way to answer this without seeing unbearably smug. Is but there? you always seem unbearably <laughs> smug, James. So let's go. For it. Well, in my case, it would probably be my trip to Skywalker Ranch, where I got to look through George Lucas's archives and fondled the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> Uh, and indeed, the original Howard the Duck, which is weirdly enough just fondled, su- stuck under a under a. Are you sure? I, ho- I fondled Howard the Duck. Was He's it a job in an actor just sitting in a yes, costume? In a costume, and they have like a little it's a little case, and you open it up and packed in foam are all the lightsaber hilts from the from the films wow. and stuff. There's wow. there's lots of cool was stuff in there. There's the Darth Vader uh, that they burned on the pyre at the end of Jedi. Phil, what's your uh, what's your career highlight apart from obviously reuniting the cast of Escape to Victory? Reuniting. <laughs> Some of the cast some of, of the cast of Richie, the subs bench, some, of the, some of the footballing cast of us. Everything's getting a bit escaped to Richie, but I probably would be meeting, interviewing Michael Caine. That would be huge. But in the podcast, we had Terence Stamp talking through his risotto recipe in real time. <laughs> that was kind of special. That was amazing. And that'll be something that'll be cooking quite soon. Otherwise, he'll no doubt make me, you know, suffer. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Well, staying in the San Francisco area, as James did, going to Pixar was probably that was pretty awesome. I'd also probably say when we had the Serenity cast in for a web chat because I think the Empire Office certainly our end of the Empire Office was collectively more excited that day than we have ever been. This was the web chat that broke the website I should point out. Okay so keeping on the theme of reader contributions it's jingle time we have an entry from our usual contributor Microfarad Melody Eel who riffs on Edgar Wright's appearance on the podcast and his propensity for saying the word like God bless him. I say kind of like a lot kind of like kind of like Kind of like, kind of, kind of like, kind of like, kind of like, kind of like, kind of, kind of like, kind of like, kind of like, kind of like, kind of, kind of like. I don't have a Peter Andre banana meltdown. Well, that was interesting. Thanks again, Microfire Melody Eel. But we do have a proper jingle. No offense, sir. From Samuel Heiligers and his band. His band have made a jingle for us, which is nice. And his band are called. Photo icons. And here it is. Fantastic stuff. Mm. Now, if you have a jingle for us, 10 to 15 seconds in length, please, then please do send it to us as an MP3 to podcast at empireonline.com. And if you have anything you want to get off your chest to us, and you can you can visit us on our Facebook page, you can poke us or throw a sheep at us, whatever you want to do, you can contact us on Twitter. We're at Empire Magazine. The hashtag is Empire Podcast. And again, that email address, podcast at empireonline.com. Okay, let's crack on with the week's movie news. Now, we're going to try something of a first here. The Cannes Film Festival, which I believe is in Cannes, is currently still ongoing and our Damon Wise and Nick Dissemblian have been out there tracking every major event and every movie star happening and they join us now via Skype so apologies for sound quality hello Japs hello bonjour the UK <laughs> <laughs> how has Cannes been? 
bit of a quieter this year. Not so many people. We've been noticing that today. The screenings aren't quite so packed. Nothing's quite so hectic. The restaurants aren't quite so busy. And yeah. it's been raining pretty much non-stop. The sun's come out today for the first time in about four days. What's been on the radar? What 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 films have been standing out? Well, everything's been pretty good this year. It's been surprising. I haven't seen any duds really. I mean, I've seen things that have disappointed or been a bit disappointing, but nothing terrible. There's nothing. There's been no chores so far. But maybe. I've stayed away from some of those films, but I've seen about 10 of the main competition and nothing's bored me. Wow. The standout uh, so far probably has been Room 237, which is the documentary about The Shining, which I saw yesterday afternoon. It's just brilliant. Very, very entertaining. And also something called Holy Motors, which um, we saw last night and is insane, but very good. Yeah, the Empire tip for the Palm Door. Room 237 is in director's fortnight, so that may not turn up in some of the can coverage. A lot of people have missed it because it's got a boring title. But <laughs> Holy Motors is the film that... Every, and, until Holy Motors, everyone thought the favourite was going to be the new Michael Haneke film, Amor, mm. because it's really depressing and it's got old people in it. <laughs> and they die. And what could be more alluring to a can, to a can jury than old people dying and having a really miserable time? <laughs> um, but, um, it is a well-made film. It's a little bit cynical. But the thing about Holy Motors is it, it just went down insanely well. It's a French film, the French love it, and it makes no sense whatsoever. And it's got Carly Minogue in it. It's got Carly Minogue and Denis Levant. Uh, I think he's French actor. I think he was in Beau Travail. I can't remember. He's very quite a famous actor here right. who plays ten parts. Yeah. And we actually don't know what those parts are. He's, he, he's a guy <laughs> who lives in a in a stretch limo. So that's gonna be there's gonna be two stretch limo movies here. <laughs> one being David Cronenberg's Cosmopolis, which yeah. we haven't seen yet. The other one being this. So basically, yeah, it's a guy in a, in a stretch limo who who is driven around from appointment to appointment, and every appointment is like a sketch or a, a scene. It has a memorable scene in which he is completely stark naked with an erection, and he eats Eva Mendes's hair. And it's weirder than I made it sound. Uh, I see it purely because he said that it contains a scene where he sits there with an erection eating even men. <laughs> oh, she's wearing a burqa. He forgot to tell you that. <laughs> and then she starts to sing. So it's like it's it's like Inland Empire, but madder and. Eva Mendes in a burqa, nude man, erection eating. Her hair. <laughs> <laughs> we saw it. <laughs> You had me, frankly, at Eva Mendes and Erection, so I will be there. But what about the uh, the big Hollywood movies that have been guessing competition for the Palm Door, I mean, the likes of Lawless and Killing Them Softly? They're not really Hollywood movies, because they, they all take about 10 minutes to start, because they have so many production credits on the beginning, like a so-and-so production in association with another production. There's no studio titles at the beginning of these films, so they're kind of pretty They're pretty much indie movies. But Lawless didn't go down well at all, I, which is, I thought was a shame, because it's a good, exciting, Tom Hardy's fantastic in it, Nick Cave wrote a great script, and it really cracks along but the one everyone liked was killing them well like more was killing them softly Andrew Dominic Brad Pitt and to be honest it's kind of we've seen it it's sort of it, it's point blank is what it is it's a, you know a guy who wants his money what, what do you think Nick it's decent it, it's not as, as good as I was hoping from the assassination of um, the title I can't remember is <laughs> 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 James by the coward Tom Ford no he, Robert, <laughs> Robert, <laughs> Robert Ford <laughs> what about the uh, what about the big stars Nick said has Cannes had a lot of star power this year it has yeah I mean it started with Moon Kingdom, which had Edward Norton, Bill Murray, Bruce Willis was here, so that was uh, that was kind of a huge beginning. But it's been pretty star-packed. Brad Pitt's obviously here. They had the premiere last night, so there was a lot of screaming for him. It's been a good, a good one. It's been like you know five or six big stars every day. Bill Murray was the one that made me the happiest. He never has interview schedules. He he turns up, and if he's in the mood, he'll do. He'll talk to people. So I went down. I did a bunch of interviews with the rest of the Moonrise Kingdom cast, and then I kind of hung around and eventually got kind of beckoned over and talked to him but he's a he's a very uh, very pleasant chap and that's going to be in the <laughs> new issue of Empire the next one the one sale at the end of June where you will see the fruits of Nick's labours a Bill Murray pint of milk that is well worth the wait and he gives the most technical answer to the question how much is a pint of milk I think in the history of pint of milk he really <laughs> thought it through there's a lot of talk of gallons and quarts and a lot of mathematics that, that he goes into was Tarantino there this year because I know that you guys saw some Django Unchained footage there was a rumour that he was coming to introduce the screening of Dracula 3D that turned out to be rubbish I just think he's too busy now if he could have made the schedule work he would have been there but he wasn't there Harvey was there who told me that Quentin is looking forward to Empire's coverage of Django more than any other magazine in the world and somehow he made that sound quite threatening (laughs) (laughs) and what about the uh, the footage for the master we saw a lot of footage that wasn't in the the teaser it was quite about seven minutes and it looks really interesting the uh, colour palette was fantastic very kind of Charles Atlas sort of like it was like a 50s beach movie at places but not in a not a kind of teen movie Joaquin Phoenix just looks insane he's like this, this one scene where he's just drumming this 
this window with his fingers. But we also got to see Philip Seymour Hoffman as the master doing some kind of tirades. And so, but we still don't know what the film's about. If it is a, in a, a kind of, if it's about a kind of Scientology-like group that takes on board a very difficult case and tries to cure him, that's my take on it. But it couldn't be. It may not be that. We don't know what it is yet. But it did look amazing. And what about the uh, Django footage? Where do we start? I mean, it just looks, it just looks amazing. It really nails the humour and the violence and the uh, outrageous sort of political comment in the script. But it looked great. It looked really great, and people were laughing in the room. Yeah, it's bouncy, fizzy, and there's, there's a lot of lot of comedy that people won't be expecting. Fantastic and predictions for Palm Door: best director, best actor, best actress. Go. Uh, Michael Haneke uh, or Leos Carrick for best director. For best actor is a is a mixed bag. We could have Dennis Levon for Holy Motors, or also a big favourite is Matthias Schoenartz from Jacques Odiard's Rust and Bone, which was amazing. Actress, I'm not quite sure at the moment. Even Matthias is hair. Yeah, but, but thin on the ground, leading ladies. Leading ladies might be parodies loved by Ulrich Sado. And um, what about the Palm Door itself? At the moment, it's a tie between Amour and, if the jury is feeling bold, Holy Motors. Okay, fantastic. Good demo. I have to say, you're usually wrong every year with your predictions, so it's going to be interesting to see what happens. <laughs> but uh, great. Uh, thanks for joining us, Demo and Nick. Au revoir. Well, that worked. That was interesting. That's opened up a whole world of possibilities. Uh, right, moving on with the rest of the week's movie news. Helen, what has been queuing around the block of your movie news multiplex this week <laughs> I was I was interested this week to hear about the cancellation of a film that I thought had died long ago Order of the Seven which is the sort of kung fu take on the Snow White and the Seven Dwarves mm-hmm. story has now officially been sort of stopped development at Disney it looked like it was going to go there for a little while they had Saoirse Ronan lined up they were talking to people like Jaiman Hunsu to play one of the seven martial arts fighters who was going to kind of help her in her quest very much not a dwarf we should say but that's now been been put on the back burner the theory is that it's down to the underperformance of John Carter a little bit earlier in the year although Disney can't be hurting that much because they do have another film we're not allowed to mention that other film darn it anyway so they are apparently that's one possible reason because it was going to be a high budget thing I think far more likely is the fact that we've already had two Snow White films this year mm-hmm. and uh, and this one kind of missed its window I mean this has been in development for about I don't know five or six years it feels like back when it was being developed the competing Snow White project was not Mirror Mirror or Snow White and the Huntsman it was another one entirely called Sydney White and the Seven Dorks <laughs> which went straight to DVD it's I think a bit bizarre that it's you know a, taking this long, and then B, falling at the last hurdle. That's absolutely amazing. I don't think we need another Snow White, do we? I feel like we're done for a little while. Yeah. yeah. Even though it does sound like a really fun take on it. Maybe like a yeah. dwarf spin-off film. Perhaps. You never know. But this, uh, as Helen said, wouldn't involve dwarfs. No. But, uh, I would say it might be the underperforming of Mirror Mirror affected it more than, say, John Carter. Well, no, but it's possible, but it's being produced by Disney and apparently the budget was spiralling and they got a bit bit worried about investing in yet another sort of untried... They had like a flashback to John Carter, like in Jacob's Ladder. (laughs) That was probably it. (laughs) Another seven related movie news this week, Tom Cruise has become attached like a limpet to a remake of The Magnificent Seven. Are we excited about that? I know it's very, very early days. There's not even a writer yet. There's not even a director, but he's attached to it. (laughs) <laughs> yes, he is attached to it. It's very, you're right. It's very early days. He's got an incredible amount of stuff on his slate. So mm-hmm. who knows when this will happen? MGM, I believe, yes. behind this, which yes. is interesting. They've sort of seemed to have dusted off their financial difficulties and, and started, you know, the wheels of filmmaking turning again. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I, I don't. To be honest, I'm excited about it. Not especially, I have to say. Unless it depends really where they're going to put it. If it's going to be like the Seven Samurai, obviously came out of mm-hmm. American cinema. Um, Howard Hawks and such like and then John Sturgis's Magnificent Seven yes. fed back into the West I don't know if I want to see another just traditional Western with well, Tom Cruise let's not forget of course the third retelling of that which was of course Battle Beyond the Stars mm. and of course A, a yes, Bug's absolutely. Life A Bug's Life also if there's an interesting kind of maybe a modern slant or you know something someone on the forum was suggesting take it to you know put it in the war on terror context or something I mean just something a bit different might be fun I don't know I, I kind of like the idea of Cruz in a western he's never done one has he apart no. from the bar fight in Cocktail which would probably be the closest <laughs> to the saloon days of the old west I honestly doesn't that, it doesn't excite me that much it's, I really like Cruz when he's kind of a bit out there and doing slightly zany things I don't think there's much scope for that in this unless he's playing I mean I don't know which of the seven he would be well, playing presumably he'd be the Yul Brynner character yeah 
Yeah, Chris. which is not exactly a out there wacky zany character. I know there's a lot of like tension. I don't think with he has to be wacky and zany. I think he's got uh, Cruz is getting to that age now where his face is beginning to finally show that he, he's 50 years old. He doesn't look 50 years he's old. Beginning mm-hmm. look he's, he's beginning to look 37. He's beginning to look 37. Yeah, right. At a push. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a 37 year old who's just been to a rather nice spa and had a lovely <laughs> facial. But uh, he still is beginning finally to have a sort of weathered in look. Which might just work as, uh, as mm. the leader of, of yeah, these guys. Yeah, it could be fun. As far as remakes are concerned, and remakes of remakes of remakes of remakes, it's hey, just Kanye a bit could like... Remix a theme tune. Huh? Kanye could remix a theme tune. Kanye That'd be amazing. Can, yeah. That'd be phenomenal. We'd that would that. be okay. That would be a thing. <laughs> Definitely, that could Feels be not something right that would to, happen. To that on iTunes. I'm sure if I sound a bit underwhelmed, I just think like we've Wait, no. seen. I think what's interesting about the Western is traditionally it has had something to say. I honestly don't know what a Tom Cruise Magnificent Seven would be saying about the state of the world. I don't think all westerns have to say. No, they, the they the don't. But we've seen films like Silverado and you know fun stuff. We've seen Blazing Saddles has taken Mickey out of it. We've seen you know Silverado Open Range is a good western. Mm. Three Ten from Yuma, pointless. Nowadays, it seems like a western doesn't come along unless it has weighty themes attached no, to it. No, no, really. I, dark and no, gritty t- and maybe it's time for something fun in which you see seven movie stars on horses shooting at people and being shot and you know someone doing that Robert Vaughn mm. noble moment of self-sacrifice watch the great. original yeah. would be you know in that case true but unfortunately I mean, we live in a, an area where people don't well, want to watch I'm saying that's not a good thing I, it's absolutely so, not a good thing but it, you know but it movie goers these days and you ask me. Will not go, the Magnificent Seven will be too slow for them and they won't like the, the, the fact that yeah. it takes ages to meet all seven it takes ages to get going so maybe a 70 minute Magnificent Seven will maybe be you're, t- you're talking me into this <laughs> yeah. that sounds great I can't think of any reason Jimbo What's in, what's in your mind this week? To be fair, the, the new story that, that tickles my particular fancy isn't even a new story. It's just that someone whose cousin had a dog that went to a party and overheard <laughs> someone talking to a waitress who wrote down on a napkin that The Rock may, in fact, be playing DC's Lobo. So this may absolutely never happen. It just got me thinking, what if? Mm. And I found that quite entertaining. I, I was a bit of a Lobo fan in the 90s. For anyone who doesn't know, he was one of the more popular DC characters of the era. He was, a, he was a kind of a parody of Wolverine for the time, a kind of space bounty hunter, biker, hairy, red-eyed. So looked like the guitarist out of Kiss, actually. You know, he was into Anthrax, by which I mean the rock group, not the popular biological weapon. Hang on, hang on. Um, Lobo was into Anthrax? Yes. So my, I've, I've never read Lobo, but yeah. my understanding of it was it was like a Conan type thing where he's so well no he's an alien mod- bounty hunter no, yeah he's an alien bounty hunter oh it's in the modern day. yeah well he's, okay. future, he's, a, he's from the future and, does well, he know Boba Fett he's, he's, he's from space okay. he's, uh, he's from, from the planet Zarn or Zarnian wasn't or something. he essentially the, a, a Wolverine ripoff he was indeed a Wolverine ripoff but then in one of the Deadpool comics they actually do a parody character of Lobo so it's a parody Ooh. of a parody and then Image parodied that and it all got quite meta from then on <laughs> his name in Zarnian means he who devours your entrails and thoroughly enjoys it that's an economical language to yeah. be able to say all that in two syllables. I thought so. Just before we moved on, there was one other story that was very exciting this week, I thought, which was Duncan Jones's project mm. to make a film about Ian Fleming, a biopic about Ian Fleming. And I think yes. it's focusing on where Fleming ended and Bond began. But yes. there's so much interesting stuff. And, and we've taught news for a long time, so just really super briefly. It just seems like a really interesting project for him to pick. He's been circling you know other sci-fi type projects after moon and source code but this is a bit of a curveball but i'm very excited about it so it's the moon maker on the moon raker maker that's amazing there's a tagline right there amazing who will play ian fleming Michael Fassbender. Michael Fassbender is Why Ian not? Fleming. But I think Jeffrey Rush is the obvious pick for the older. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Oh, right. I, thought you the, <laughs> I thought you meant the young. The no, young sorry, I was thinking of the but older. Is, is it going to focus on his older period when he actually wrote the Bond movies and he moved to Jamaica and lived in a house that they actually called Goldeneye? And I, I would be surprised. Be? I don't know is the answer to that question okay. in short, but I would be surprised if it doesn't have a little bit of that. I mean, he died age 56 after a life of smoking, drinking, well, partying. Well, I've, I've, I've Robert Downey Jr. How did that happen? Yeah. yeah. I've only started recently uh, reading the Fleming Bond novels. I've never read them before. And after my Bondathon in 2006, I had to purge myself of all things Bondian. I just couldn't face it. But recently I started reading them, so I started off with Casino Royale. And one of the first things you learn about Bond is that it says, Bond lit up his 70th cigarette of the day. And you think, and then, he, <laughs> then later on, he like drinks loads. And every morning he starts off with about a dozen scrambled eggs mixed in a very, very specific way. And you think, how is Bond not dead by the end of this story <laughs> he's just gonna keel over at some point playing cards you know the, the last card is too much for him how yeah so yeah I'm thinking, I mean, 57 years old he, he did alright to get to that point if his life echoed Bond is there a way. bit where it's like and Bond chases after Goldfinger on his trundle wheel <laughs> <laughs> hauls himself gasping yeah. to his feet yeah. <laughs> not the stairs Goldfinger <laughs> 
So uh, we have one last talking point, which is uh, today that our Lucy and Debbie both got tattoos, and they they weren't movie related tattoos, but they got tattoos, and it got me thinking: what movie related tattoo would you get, and why? And I'm going through it open to you guys for next week. So that's podcast at empireonline.com, or you can contact us at Empire Podcast hashtag at Empire Magazine on Twitter. But Helen, you've got a tattoo, haven't you? You've got one. I do. Is it movie related? No. Okay, what is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's just a little blue star. All right, okay. It's very boring. Would you ever get one? Well, I'm actually planning at some point to get a second tattoo, which would be a quote from Sandman, because clearly I have an inner goth. But uh, if I were to get a movie-related one, it might be Nobody's Perfect from Some Like It Hot. Okay, where would you get that? A tattoo store? <laughs> yes, obviously. <laughs> I'd just go to a reputable But would you get it somewhere where people could see it? Or I'd, uh, I don't mind too much. I'd get it somewhere as unpainful as possible. And where it wouldn't upset my mother. It's <laughs> just walking around with nobody's perfect. Well, no, somewhere where it wouldn't upset my mother, I think, would also be good. Phil, what tattoo would you get? I thought about getting a tattoo for a while. I, maybe a star, and then Helen and I could form some sort of Prometheus-style star map, and people could find the <laughs> or- genesis of the human race. Has that answered your question? <laughs> That'd be amazing. Yeah, so I, I would never get one done. Although, if I were to get one, I'd get the, uh, I don't know, the poster for Star Wars on my face. <laughs> I'd, get a, I'd get a full chest tattoo of Arnold Schwarzenegger in Commando. Of course you would. Of course you would, absolutely. If you haven't seen The Raid, Gareth Evans' pulse-pounding action movie about a group of cops who have to fight their way through a building housing the scum of the universe, then what have you been doing? It's the action movie of the year and it's essential viewing. Evans, a Welshman now carving out a cinematic name for himself in Indonesia, popped in last week to talk about the film. Thankfully, even though we're on the third floor here at Empire Towers, he didn't have to fight his way up. He just took the lift. Phil and Ali Plum asked the questions. Maybe you could talk about sort of John Woo as someone that, that might have been a yeah kind of influence for you and, and how that tied into yeah big style I mean like I, I remember the first actually Hard Boiled was the first John Woo film I'd ever seen and um, I think I'd seen they showed clips on it I think on MTV yeah when they showed like, it was like maybe like the awards of best action or something and they had like a clip of the scene where um, Mad Dog and Tony Lung are shooting at each other through the windows and jumping out and I, th- I was like what the hell is this <laughs> like, I hadn't seen anything like this yeah and um, I remember waiting and waiting and waiting for it to come out because I knew it was going to come out on video soon in UK and so uh, the day it came out was the day I rented it and you know my dad was this was you know he was always the censor in the house so uh, we rented it but then I had to wait for my dad to watch it first like that was really? his rule that was his rule he was like I'm going to watch it tonight and if it's suitable for you you can watch it the next day and so um, actually what happened was is that uh, while we were while I, while I got home from school because our school finished one hour ahead of my dad's school because my dad's a computer teacher right what he was he's retired now and uh, so I had like a one hour window where I could actually sneak in and watch like the first hour of Hard Boiled at least right <laughs> and I got right up into that po- moment when Chai and Fat and Tony Lung are pointing guns at each other and then all of a sudden I hear his car coming around <laughs> so I was like shit I had to press stop and then rewind the tape back put it back in the box before he got through the door but all the while I'm just I, I, you know it's it's you know, there's three really big action scenes in that first hour and I was just on edge I was like I have to see the rest of this film it, it better be suitable you know so, yeah, yeah. so that that was the longest wait ever because you know my dad would waited until I went to bed first so he could start watching it and then you know I had to wait the entire night and then an entire school day before he would tell me like <laughs> yes you can watch it now and, and I just remember it was just it was just it was the most incredible action scene I'd, action film I'd ever seen it was, and it still is to this day like I think it's one of the best action films ever made so yeah yeah were you tempted to get any doves into the raid? Kind of uh, no. no, 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 no. <laughs> I think that would be like a step too far. <laughs> I think shooting a person three times in the face was enough of an homage. I think. <laughs> so your dad is pretty much the best action martial arts expert in South Wales, I guess. Uh, I guess much. so. Yeah. Your... I mean, yeah. We. I mean, it was that thing of every every weekend we like, we'd go watch rugby in the daytime, and then on the way back we'd pick up something from the video shop, and uh, yeah, nine times out of ten it would be some kind of like action. Movie movie that we you just all get to watch well <laughs> sometimes I wouldn't get the pick and I remember the first time we had Police Story actually um, I had no idea there was a Jackie Chan film and my dad just because back then like you'd rent a video and it would be in its oh, a separate case with just the name of the shop on the front and he just opened it up and he said oh yeah we got this tonight and it'd be Police Story I'd be like, I don't want to watch that I want to watch a Jackie Chan film because Police Story didn't sound like mm. a Jackie Chan film um, and, and then yeah when, when we got home and put it on then and got to see oh it's a Jackie Chan film and then oh He's driving <laughs> through a shanty town. Now he's hanging off a bus, and it was just—it was the best, best experience ever. Yeah, so that was childhood, really. Is Jackie someone you'd compare Eco to more than a Bruce Lee or Chow Yun Fat, um, or 
he's kind of his own thing isn't he I mean yeah so I think it's one of those things like Jackie's like Jackie's always been the guy that did like really outrageous stunts you know mm. his martial arts is incredible too but you know he's more known for the fact that he would put his body at risk so much for his art mm. um, Bruce Lee was much more of a technical martial artist you know but then it's kind of like it's one of the things maybe Eco's closer to Bruce Lee in that respect because Eco's more about grounded fighting styles yeah but then it's arrogant as hell to compare anyone to Bruce Lee because of the legacy they left behind you yeah. know and Bruce Lee's like the, the, the you know he's the god of, of martial yeah. arts cinemas so yeah closer in that respect more like Jet Li I think than anything else you know that kind of pure technical fighting style that's yeah. what Ico is more like I mentioned somebody's interested in the raid and they've heard about it they've heard good things but they're not necessarily like a big martial arts nut and this is a big question to ask mm. but what movies alongside Hard Boiled and Police Story and probably Super Cop as well would you recommend for a you know someone just starting out in the uh, world of martial arts oh, movies uh, oh there's tons of films that's a good one um, I mean I, I, I tend to rattle off the entire filmography of Jackie Chan from like <laughs> the 80s through the 90s and stuff but uh, I tell you one which I absolutely adore is uh, Jet Li's Fist of Legend which I think is incredible. It's like one of the best martial arts films ever made. And then you got like Drunken Master Two, Armor of God, uh, Project A One and Two. Uh, let's see, Drunken Master One even, and actually The Young Master, which is a very early Jackie Chan film. I love that film so much. The, the the final fight of that is incredible. It goes on and on and on for like about ten minutes, I think, or something. But it's all shot in this one big open field in the daytime, and it's like there's there's no props really. There's no there's no like escape route. There's nothing he can use as a location, which is interesting because Jackie Chan is known for using props and locations to his mm. advantage right but in the young master it's just a big big grass field yeah and he had nothing to use and it was just physical fighting and it's incredible and the fact that it goes on as long as it does and never gets boring is like it's how do they do that i mean i guess what what is it that makes a really good action sequence because you, you watch a lot of films hollywood films in particular nowadays and they tend to like cut so fast around mm -hmm. action sequences and it kind of bombards you almost like they don't really have the courage of their convictions yeah what they're showing the raid is really not that at all you kind of let your you know sequences happen mm -hmm -hmm. Um, I think in that, camera and, and over I, time yeah I think that's that's what it is it's the it's it's showing the detail of the choreography because mm. we spend a long time designing it and like I spent such a long time with Iko and Yayan and we debate over every little punch every little block and if we're going to go that detailed to design it why would we want to like hide it all when it comes to the actual final execution of it it wouldn't yeah. really make sense and so I think I guess that's that's kind of how those sort of you know uh slightly exaggerated you know prolonged fight scenes work is that you know you you get to see all the little cool uh different ideas or or sort of uh cool little setups that you have in the choreography and how they play out mm. and it's kind of like um it's like it's the equivalent of watching two people play chess sometimes like i i'm, I'm a big fan i'm less of a fan of people getting punched and kicked repeatedly i'm actually more of a fan of like really long blocking sequences where they're each looking for that one little part where they can get in <laughs> but they can't quite get that attack yet mm. and it's that one wrong move that that person made after like 10 or 15 blocks that suddenly lent itself to that punch being earned that's what interests me and that's like what I love so the old Shaw Brothers like martial mm. arts films like the Gordon Liu stuff was incredible because like, they were like really long shots long takes and complex choreography as well Jackie Chan movies are famous, um, certainly in my mind, for their fantastic uh, Jackie Chan song theme songs. I'm <laughs> guessing they won't, you won't be taking a leaf out of that book. <laughs> Eco can't sing for shit. So <laughs> there's no way. I've heard him in karaoke. There's no way I'm going to let Eco sing a theme tune for him. <laughs> but those theme tunes normally go over his, you know, blooper reel or you know, yeah. stunt reel. Is there a stunt reel that you might be tempted just to release online to help support this movie? Because I would love to see the yeah. bloopers. We, 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 do, we do try to do... We did a blooper reel for our first film, Maranta. But I kind of... Like, for me, I could say... Like, Jackie does it at the end of his films. And that was Jackie's thing, see? And that was like that. It's already been done, you know? And I figure we can put it on as extra feature materials as a DVD. Because for me... Uh, I don't I don't want the audience to have that feeling while they're watching the film mm. of the making of the film mm. like you know when we do the fight scenes it's like we keep it grounded in reality because I, I don't want to do things like um, like too much acrobatics like triple twists and then a kick because once you do that all you're thinking is how did they do that mm. like how, how is that guy able to do that and mm. sometimes you'll see a stunt guy waiting to get take a hit and he's preparing himself and then yeah. it takes you out of the fight then because you're not you're not in that fight anymore you're a spectator of like wow look, look how acrobatic this is and so in that respect as well we didn't want to put like the outtakes at the end credits because suddenly you've gone from being completely immersed in that film to suddenly being taken yeah. into the making of what, what you get in in you know in uh, the raid is none of that 
traditional martial arts trick of four men in the background going side to side like a space mm-hmm. invader yeah, was that yeah. something you were conscious of avoiding yeah um i mean especially when we do mass attack scenes like when, when you do the the scenes where there's like a lot of people uh and like the guys will the, when Iko and yain are designing like the choreography with me like they'll they'll come up with the technical stuff like okay block block punch stuff like that and if we're doing those mass attack scenes like i'm always kind of i've I've got a ticker going on in my head so every time they present stuff to me and it's like oh i'm gonna block five times and then punch this guy i'll be like you haven't got time for that <laughs> the guy next guy should be up already and fighting yeah. you so you got room for two blocks and then a punch because otherwise he's gonna have to be behind exactly his watch. Yeah. and and the thing is <laughs> we, we we really try then to kind of figure out okay what everyone's doing so we kind of figure this guy's been hitting the nose and slammed against that wall Okay, he can be out for about 10 seconds, but he's got to come back in after that. And we try to kind of work out the timing of each little person, which when it's a two-on-one fight, that's not so hard. Like the big <laughs> fight at the end, it was pretty easy. It was like, okay, well, you've been like mauled on this one. You're out for about like two or three movements and then you can come back in and be a part of the fight again. But when you've got four people involved... It's so complex. Yeah, you're juggling every no, single it, person then. What was your grade at A-level math? <laughs> I, I'm <laughs> terrible at math, actually. I'm really bad at math, yeah. And yet you're creating these incredible puzzles because <laughs> no. now because now you know when i rewatch it i'm going right so then okay and then oh wow <laughs> you, you you must have like a kind of a, a notebook the size of uh, the bible we do we do make a lot of notes and, and um we but we we're, we're pretty we're actually pretty unorganized when we're actually designing the fight scenes because there's like countless of times where we've come up with stuff and then we've like maybe we didn't have the camera working or we hadn't charged the battery or something and then we've forgotten the choreography there the next morning and we're like oh we should have made a reference for this. we should have made reference <laughs> tape and right now for Miranda even like you know, we're, we're prepping ready to do that I had about three or four pages worth of notes in a notebook somewhere. Uh, for an entire prison riot scene that we'd written and we designed and, and I can't find that notebook right now <laughs> and so like Iko and Yayan are sort of you know, they're, they're waiting patiently and I'm I, every time they ask I'm like <clears throat> I haven't found it yet I'm still looking Gareth and, where did uh, you last see it? Um, I last saw it before we started shooting the raid so I'm thinking it's gone <laughs> okay. oh wow it's gonna be somewhere <laughs> So somebody somewhere may find my notes and then make a prison riot scene in something or other. But if you've seen his notes, email him. <laughs> yeah, we want to know. If the claymation cat gets hold of them, <laughs> <laughs> hey, that'd be pretty damn cool, actually. That is that was cool. amazing, actually. Really, really good. Yeah. The film Hardcastle. hasn't even come yeah. out yet, and you've already kind of got viral tributes on YouTube. <laughs> that was and, really great. It was yeah. such a great idea as well because I know like the guys of Momentum uh, uh, commissioned Lee to do it, and I was a big fan of Lee's anyway from before because I'd seen mm. the T for Toilet uh, episode that, for the ABCs of Death. And uh, when they when they said it, they said when the guy suggested, "Oh, let's get Lee to do a clay cat version of the raid." <laughs> like I've never been more excited <laughs> to see something done in my entire life. I was like, "Please do it! Let's get it done!" So you yeah. know you've reached the big time when Lee Harcastle is creating a cat <laughs> yeah. claymation version of your film. <laughs> I think Spielberg was honoured <laughs> yeah. when Private Ryan was turned into a claymation <laughs> cat movie. Uh, this is a perhaps uh, a personal question, but I'm fascinated by the idea of you moving to Indonesia mm-hmm. and setting up your life there. If you wouldn't mind, I'd yeah. love to hear about your story of, of moving from Wales to yeah. Indonesia and, and becoming part of this industry of, of martial arts movies. Well, like I, I, I wanted to make films in the UK first, uh, all the way since I was a kid. Like as a kid growing up, uh, embarrassingly, when I was a child growing up, I, uh, you know, watching all those Jackie Chan films and Bruce Lee films, me and my friends used to try and do like remakes of these <laughs> films in our back garden. Uh, you know, like when we watched the uh, Son of Rambo, like that was yeah, like, yeah. that was my childhood. But we didn't have a camera, thank God. So there's no footage <laughs> to kind of show it. But like literally, like I thought, oh, I, I'm going to be Jackie Chan. I'm going to be Bruce Lee. I wanted to be that guy. And then I realized that I I, I can't act for shit, and I'm terrible at martial arts. <laughs> so then you know, writing and directing seemed like a fair, fairly healthy substitute for that. And um, yeah, I, I always wanted to make films, but it, it never kind of became a possibility. I, I just didn't push enough. I did a couple of short films and I did a, a low-budget independent feature, but um, you know that that was pretty much my experience. That was it. I, I didn't I didn't do enough to get myself noticed. So it's never been one of the things where I've like oh begrudged the mm. industry. It's just my own fault. And I slipped back into my like my nine to five. And then my wife, who's Indonesian Japanese, she realized what was happening and she put in a few phone calls because she knew some producers and contacts back in Indonesia, sent them my feature, sent them some of my work and said, like, you know, he's really interested in like blah blah blah, martial arts, this, 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 this. And um yeah, I got offered to direct a documentary then. So it was like a fifty minute documentary, like to be about Indonesian culture. And it just happened to be that, that Indonesian culture that I was filming was Penchaksi, the martial arts that we use out there. 
Did you uh, know about Silat before you were in not at to all. Indonesia? No, not at all. Because it, it hasn't crazy. really appeared on, on on screen before. Yeah, and, and the ironic thing is, like, since I learned about it, like, there are schools in London, there are schools all over UK, Europe, and America. Like it's a really popular martial art, but I just I just never come across it before. And so when I went out to do that documentary, it was like this thing. Like I, I'm not really a documentary filmmaker. I'm much more focused on narrative stuff. And so when I went out there to learn about it, like it was like six months of being paid to do research for what could become like the feature, yeah. like what what became Maranta really. And so you know uh, the storyline from Maranta came from a real tradition and culture that I learned while doing the documentary. Mm. The martial arts style came from that documentary. Uh, some of the choreography team came from meeting them on that documentary and then the last piece of that sort of jigsaw was Ico because I met him while filming his master so it was just one of those like freak occurrences where we did a bunch of research we met like lots of different masters all around Indonesia and I just became interested in this one guy in Jakarta because of his story was quite interesting because he was looking for a new Mm. heir to take on his class and take on his school and then it was about his search because our approach in the documentary was to make something less about the physical side of Silat, more about the philosophy, more about what it meant yeah. to each of these people. And so we just fluked out because while we were doing research on that guy and filming the classes doing their practice session, Eco was in there and he was one of the students. And all the kids in the class, like they kept saying, oh, Eco's going to practice today. Eco's going to practice today. And, you know, we were just like, who's Eco? <laughs> and then in comes this kid, like, you know, five foot seven, five foot six, you know, looking pretty unassuming. And then he put on his see that uniform, started performing, and we were like, "Holy shit! Like this guy's good. Like he's got like a, a screen presence about him." And so I was elbowing my wife, and I was like, "You know, we gotta get in touch with him. We have to use him in something." Like, and I had no idea at that point what. And then after that whole process of the documentary, then I was like, okay, well, let's make films. Let's do something with Silat because I really wanted my friends that I would drink beers with and watch martial arts movies with to be able to see Silat. But all of the films that actually were made with Silat, they were from the 70s and the like, late 70s and early 80s. But the the Silat choreography in then those days was kind of a little bit dated. It didn't mm-hmm. date as well as something like Drunken Master has. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it was a lot of times it was mixing Silat with a lot of mysticism, a lot of like supernatural elements. Like if you've seen, uh, I've seen The Warrior. It's mm-hmm. like a Barry Prima martial arts film. Like that's that's insane. That's that's one of the most insane cult movies you'll ever get to watch, <laughs> right? Mondo Macabro guys put it out as well on DVD, right? It's incredible, right? It's so crazy. But like that was like that was seen as like one of the big sort of martial arts films to come out from Indonesia, and yeah, it, it's uh, it's insane. There's actually there's a there's an eye transplant scene done, but with telekinesis. <laughs> you gotta watch it. It's so insane. Like I swear to God. Gareth Evans there, and again, if you haven't seen the raid, please do so. If you have a mind, prepare to have it blown. Okay, competition time now. We don't have one this week because I forgot but we did have one last week with five I know I know sorry but we did have one last week with five blu-ray copies of The Descendants up for grabs you can't say fairer than that the question was I believe which character did George Clooney play on ER the answer was of course dashing Dr. Doug Ross ah dreamy Doug Ross and the winners are Dr. Adam Cole Dr. Max Haining Dr. Mark Colmar Dr. Katie Trainer, and Dr. Jason Clue will be in touch soon for your addresses and whatnot. now some competition winners have got in touch with us to say they're still waiting for their prizes from previous weeks we feel your pain we're waiting for them too once a company's involved send them on to us we will send them to you directly please be patient you will get your prizes as soon as humanly possible right it's a movie review section now in which we review the week's movies gotta get a better name for that yeah it's a little first base biggest release this week is the return of the MIB in Men in Black 3 10 years after the offence of Men in Black 2 and if you can recall Lowe's offence and you're doing a lot better than us Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones are back 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 in an adventure that sees Smith travel back in time to the 1960s where he partners up with Josh Brolin's younger version of Jones's Agent K it's been 10 years in the making it's encountered all kinds of production problems it was shut down at one point so they could get the script right did they manage it? Helen? Well, I'm a bit more up on it, I think, than a couple of people in this room. Mm. Um, but even I would concede that, I mean, it's not a patch on the original. It's um, certainly much more in the area of Men in Black 2, which I think was also a, a bit of a damp script. Oh, come on. It makes so. Men in Black 2 look like Citizen Kane. It's dreadful. I wasn't in last week's <laughs> podcast with Barry, so I don't feel quite so bad for saying this, but um, it is, if such a thing can be said to exist, anti-comedy. It <laughs> sucks the joy from your soul. Well, interestingly enough, the, uh, I listened to the Barry Sonneville podcast and interviewed him in Cancun recently, and he doesn't seem to think that Men in Black 3 is a comedy, which means... No, I agree with him entirely. (laughs) But he he says it wasn't intended as a comedy. Now, I'm kind of thinking this is one of those great examples of a director misreading his own film. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not funny. He's not wrong there. But one would think it could have been played for laughs, much like the first two. I wouldn't go as far as Jameson to say that it's hateful. It feels to me like, yeah, it does 
tip towards unfunny. They're straining for jokes. It's like when someone comes up to me and says, mm. tell me a joke, and I can only think of the one about Warhorse, which is now getting a bit old. I think the problem for me was, I mean, yeah, the, the lack of funniness. I'm, I'm thinking about a couple of times where Will Smith mm. uses the neuralizer on a crowd of people and then explains what it is they've just seen. And that isn't funny. And when Will Smith isn't being funny, I think you've got a problem because I think he's a, a naturally very charismatic, very funny, very pacey kind of guy. And if his story is feeling slow and leaden, something's a I bit mean, wrong. That particular thing isn't just unfunny because it's wheeled out four or five times in each Men in Black film. It's that in this film, they're just markedly not particularly well-written gags. Yes. Apparently the time travel idea, which was Will Smith's 10 years ago, as we, anyone who listened to the podcast last week would know, he came up with this idea on set of Men in Black 2, and uh, it took them 10 years to come up with something workable. And even then, when they started without a finished script, which is just unforgivable, apparently this movie has cost an awful lot of money. I don't think it's going to be a huge success. And it's, it's a test of Will Smith. He hasn't been on screens for four years. And he kind of, in a weird way, and I, I agree with the Empire Review written by William Thomas in this one, in that he does seem a little tired in the first 15, 20 minutes of the film. It's only when he gets to the 1960s that uh, you see the Will Smith the charismatic Will Smith who doesn't slap recorders and <laughs> you know has has run-ins with racist cops and he's he reacts in a funny way to everything that's going on around him whereas in the first 20 minutes he's very tired and jaded and cynical and I don't want to see that from my Will Smith movie star action figure please on the whole Men in Black 3 is disappointing and one of the reasons is, is that they, they try for emotion at the end of it and emotion is a is something that's, that's kind of alien if you will to the, <laughs> Men, to the Men in Black franchise so we give Men in Black 3 two stars I think that's something every Everyone agrees with here, apart yeah. from James. Fair to say, yeah, I I, I liked it less. You were, you were a I four. Think. You were a five star. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I hoped, prayed that the third one might sort of rally back to what made the first one so good, and it didn't. Okay, so next up is uh, Moonrise Kingdom, the new film from Wes Anderson, in which an all star cast, including Bruce Willis, Ed Norton, Jason Schwartzman, Tilda Swinton, Francis McDormand, and of course the great Bill Murray, play second fiddle to some young newcomers in a tale of scouts and coming of age. Now, what do we think of this one? Well, if you don't like the things that Wes Anderson does then mm. this film will make you want to pull out your eyeballs <laughs> <laughs> and stick them in the nearest snooker table pocket I, it is I, very Wes Anderson it's very Wes Anderson but it? I love Wes Anderson films mm. and I love this one and I think you know he's been dismissed or described as a hipster auteur and he is certainly kind of has that feeling of auteur about him there's, mm. there's real common threads stylistically that run through his films and thematically but there's a real heart here as well it's about two kids and you know they're brilliantly played by these young actors that, that, that Wes travelled you know through many schools to cast and he cast them really well and he surrounded them by newcomers as well. Jason Schwartzman, without whom a Wes Anderson film must be breaking some law, is joined by people like Bruce Willis and Tilda Swinton, who we haven't seen before in a Wes Anderson film. How do they play in the uh, in the Wes Anderson sandbox? Perfectly, actually. Mm. You know, he, I think Bruce Willis is the interesting one, I guess, and Ed Norton as well. Ed Norton is very much kind of a mellow Ed Norton, I suppose, and, yeah, and kind of sweet in a way. Yeah, he's, he's sweet and slightly, you know, he chain smokes. A little bit of a big kid in shorts in a way <laughs> which is not sort of Ed Norton that we saw in Fight Club or Hulk Bruce Willis equally kind of slightly sad John McClane I would say put out to pasture at no point does he wrap himself up in a fire hose and jump off a treehouse. That um, is a disappointment, I'll be honest. But, you know, it's it, if you like Wes, An Wes Anderson films, it's just a lovely kind of old nostalgic world that he's tapped into in a retro way before, but there's no retro about this. This is set in that kingdom. And it, it feels a little bit dreamlike as well. It's got a bit almost a fantastic Mr. Fox feel to it because you've got really arresting images like the crazy treehouse mm. and the, even the boat sailing away and stuff. It just looks almost... It is a kind of a live-action fantastic Mr. Yeah. Fox in some ways. You know, the, the pair of squabbling parents played brilliantly by Francis McDormand and Bill Murray mm. I've produced some really funny moments the tree house where you know you look up and the kids have built this tree house like 50 feet up in this teetering tree or you know when they go looking for the two kids who've basically eloped in young love across the island and all the other scouts have armed themselves to the teeth with like axes and which they use as well I mean it's mental but it's you know it's very silly and very funny his films you know like his characters have short trousers on They're, everything's slightly out of kilter everything's a degree off but in a lovely way so we, we gave that four stars and you would concur clearly. absolutely it's not I didn't like it as much as Rushmore but it's right up there for me we round off this week with what to expect when you're expecting in which the likes of Cameron Diaz Jennifer Lopez Anna Kendrick and others Brooklyn Decker Chris yep. Rock Rodrigo, he's not pregnant in it he's not yes. okay Rodrigo Santoro yes Joe Manganiello is that how you pronounce his name I've no idea man with hunky abs that's, that's how we the pronounce one. it here they, they wrestle with various stages of pregnancy it's based on the best selling series of what self help books and 
what, rice what books, they? I guess. Rice yeah. Books. yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. There's what to expect when you're expecting, what to expect the first year, what to expect when you're weaning. Or you just had year. a baby. Did you read I, these books? We, I did. In fact, read what to expect when you're expecting. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, the, the film is here and it looks, well, frankly, utterly awful. Is it, Helen? It's not good. Uh, that's for sure. I, I think this is part of a quite obnoxious trend of basing films on books that aren't really books. It's like he's just not that into you. It's it's not a thing that should inspire anyone to write a film. The only reason they've called the film this is because the book is a bestseller and it has name recognition and that's a rubbish rubbish hook yeah. for anything so that said then the film so it, we take basically sort of four or five stories some of which vaguely interlock of people facing uh, child acquisition let's say because there is a, there <laughs> you make is a, it sound so sinister well there's an adoption here as well as the pregnancies to consider so that's it's, a J-Lo it's, thread isn't it that is the J-Lo thread yes okay. so there's, there's all these different kind of experiences of pregnancy the funniest one or the, the, the one that for me came closest to being the least awful good. yes is Elizabeth Banks plays a woman who's been trying for ages to get pregnant she runs okay. a store which somehow promotes breastfeeding I'm not sure how she makes money from that her really? mother-in-law is played by Brooklyn Decker stepmother-in-law obviously uh, who's married to Dennis Quaid and what's quite funny is that Elizabeth Banks's character, who's been trying to get pregnant for years and is thrilled to finally be knocked up, and Brooklyn Decker hasn't been trying at all and just gets pregnant, and then has the easiest pregnancy in history while Elizabeth Banks that is, is a, a total nightmare. That is a funny moment. There's 14 of these self-help books, so I spy a franchise of no, epic Honestly, I don't think so. I don't think so. And here's the thing. What we're seeing is that these ensemble, quasi-rom-com type things are all rubbish. Can someone please stop? Valentine's Day, <laughs> New Year's Eve, he's just not that into you, and now this. But those things They get make money. good people into them. They make money, though. And then they're rubbish. Not, yeah. They don't make that much money. This they, one didn't I, make that enough. much they money in this the one States. Didn't. I think Thank from an acting point of view, they're, they're attractive because you get a short period of time on set, you get your own self-contained storyline. You know, talking. I interviewed Cameron Diaz this week about it, and they, they really seem to enjoy making them. I'm sure they do. That's no excuse. Because it's not a lot of work. <laughs> no, I know. I'm just saying that it is what it is. And it's, I mean, the thing is, it's not the performances in this that are bad I think you know Anna Kendrick I think is terrific and she and Chase Crawford have a nice little bit together what's her thing yet um, they get knocked up very much by accident and it isn't oh. planned or anything and it's it's just they're they're good they're likeable I like them I, I don't particularly have anything against any of the cast I just I hated the script I didn't think it said anything about anything to anyone it wasn't <laughs> funny it wasn't clever it isn't anything it's nothing so you're telling I, me you liked it <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you I agree with Empire's two star review Fantastic. Yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty bad film this. Duly noted and avoided. Uh, <laughs> Although for the ladies For the ladies. Joe Manganiello, guy from True Blood, okay. does pull-ups topless in the park. I'm just saying. Are the husbands in this relegated largely to comic relief? No, the husbands actually get their own thread, which I thought was good. They get as much character development as the women, which is to say hardly any. But, you know, they they all have their own storylines going on. They all have their own thing. And, and to that extent, well done these filmmakers okay so we're saying two stars for what to expect when you're expecting yes film of the week Moonrise Kingdom most decidedly <laughs> absolutely <laughs> and maybe go see Men in Black 3 just to get some anger on so you can bitch about yeah, it afterwards yeah I, I would personally just go home and watch Men in Black 1 on DVD <laughs> and if I wanted a pregnancy movie I'd watch uh, Waitress Waitress yes. you're just saying that because of Nathan Villian right I'm actually saying it because of the endless shots of delicious-looking pie. And delicious-looking Nathan Fillion. Well, obviously that too. There we go. Okay, and on that bombshell, <laughs> it is goodbye from us until next week. We'll be discussing the double whammy of Prometheus and Snow White and the Huntsman. Ooh, and Charlie's Theron double bill. I know, Helen. Steady, Chris. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, Rick McCallum, producer of Star Wars and Red Tails, will also be dropping in for a pod chat. Until then, it is goodbye from everyone here. It's goodbye from Phil, James and Helen and myself, but a permanent goodbye from our amazing editorial assistant, Lucy Quick, who's leaving us after two years at Empire, and this podcast is dedicated to her. See you all next week.